Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil. Our opening song is No Tabuleiro da Baena, a samba written by Ari Barroso and recorded by Carmen Miranda and Luis Barbosa in September 1936. This was one of six Brazilian recordings by Miranda that were reissued in the United States in 1939, launching her career on Decca Records. Today's show is a kind of extension of our program, Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism in Latin America. That show detailed the fight between Axis and Allied powers over the hearts and minds and, most importantly, the natural resources of Latin America. At that time, Brazil was governed by Getulio Vargas, a constitutional president who became a dictator. And there was a real chance that this vast land would side with the Nazis, having become home to so many German immigrants. We'll point out the repetition compulsion of humankind. Brazil has just voted president-elect Jair Bolsonaro, an extremist right-wing Christian who has consistently praised Brazil's former military dictatorships as glorious. Perhaps it's notable that Bolsonaro's family immigrated to Brazil from Italy and Germany in the 1880s. Orson Welles, following hard upon the tailwind of Walt Disney, was strongly encouraged to travel in Latin America as a goodwill ambassador at the behest of Nelson Rockefeller's Office of Inter-American Affairs and to make a propaganda film as part of the trip, hopefully one as successful and on the mark as Disney's. Hope's springs are eternally sprung. Our guest today is Catherine Benamu author of the definitive account of It's All True, Orson Welles' film project for RKO and hoped-for propaganda for the U.S. war effort. Benamou's book is also called It's All True, Orson Welles' Pan-American Odyssey. And comprehensively, Benamou was an assistant producer and primary researcher for the 1993 documentary film that seeks to detail and recover this first of more than a few lost films of Orson Welles. It's also titled, It's All True. The film, in its perhaps final conception, would consist of four episodes. Two in Brazil on Carnival and the Jangada Fisherman, one in Mexico on bullfighting with a kind of children's book spin, and one set in the United States on the history of jazz. For our show, we're going to focus on the work in Brazil, and we'll get an assist from Wells himself along the way, as we'll hear a bit from the first episode of his radio program, Hello Americans which highlights samba music in Brazil. That show aired just over 76 years ago on November 15, 1942. But we'll begin exactly as the 1993 documentary It's All True does, by letting Wells set the stage with a tall tale from Rio. It's mostly all true. In the case of Brazil, we were down there making a documentary film, partly for the government, but mostly, mostly for a, a Hollywood studio. This was at the time of the good neighbor policy, and it was my task to make a large technicolor documentary on the subject of the carnival. And so we took up the whole question of samba and the samba orchestra. And when I'd nearly finished the film, it occurred to me that the origins of samba lay in voodoo ceremonies, 
particularly in Shangu, which are practiced up in uh, the favelas, those strange native settlements on the mountains, which are right in the midst of the city of Rio. And so I arranged with a good deal of difficulty to film a voodoo ceremony. And uh, we had protracted conversations with the head of the group, this doctor whose sketch I've shown you. And uh, an advance payment was arranged for. He came to my office in Rio to discuss it. And it was my unhappy lot to have to tell him that the filming was off because I had just received word from Hollywood that the president of the film studio had been removed. That sort of thing happens not only in South American governments, but also in film studios, had been rather abruptly removed. A new president was in his place, and the entire project was off. There was no more money to spend on voodoo ceremonies. And the witch doctor assured me that this was deeply offensive and uh, that he and his group took it very badly. And I said I was most sorry about it myself, and uh, I did want to finish the film, and I did hope he understood. Ah, but he said, we have spent money. We have bought entirely new costumes. And I said, well, I'm awfully sorry, but th th there just isn't any money from Hollywood to pay you. And I, I don't know how I can explain to this new administration that uh, the voodoo ceremony must continue, certainly not in the time uh, already agreed on. And I was called away to the telephone again and uh, left the doctor in my office had a long conversation on the phone, begging and pleading to be allowed to finish this picture, which we rather liked. The material was very interesting, and I thought it would be a good thing to, to finish, since so much effort had gone into it. And I was pleading my cause for some time, praying that we would be able to. And I came back to the office and found that the doctor had gone, having been told that the deal was completely off, and that on my desk, in a script of the film, was a long steel needle. It had been driven entirely through the script. And to the needle was attached a length of red wool. This was the mark of the voodoo. The end of that story is that it was the end of the film. We were never allowed to finish it. That was from Critics, episode two of Orson Welles' sketchbook. The show was a series of six short television commentaries written and presented by Wells for the BBC in 1955. And now, Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil, with Catherine Benamou on Interchange on WFHB. The Good Neighbor idea is to, uh, I assume, uh, show uh, America, show the U.S. that Brazil and other countries are wonderful places uh, to visit, full of fun and Western-style life, as well as anything else. Uh, generally, you know, you get the idea of it being uh, a wish to show a party and a beach and, you know, this idea where we can have trade with, with other people that are like us kind of thing. And Wells did not have that idea for a picture. He, he, and maybe he didn't have any idea going into it, right? He comes off the plane they say, you know, what are you going to shoot in Brazil? He's like, uh, give me six months and we'll figure it out or whatever. Yeah. Something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. And he knows that Rio, you know, is the capital of Brazil. He has official visit to make. Um, he has to engage with the official culture in Rio. Um, because at that time, Brazil had a leader, Getulio Vargas, who did censor uh, information and 
uh, you know, what was published in the papers and so on and so forth, and who was going to pay very close attention to what Wells was doing. Mm. So uh, Carnival, the perfect topic, uh, because it was happening at the time, let's show Americans what a good time Brazilians can have, and maybe you'll be interested, as you say, in touristic activity. And the Brazilians really liked this act, this idea to show Rio de Janeiro, which is a beautiful city to begin with, in Technicolor. They just said, this is what we want, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll, we'll give him all the support he needs to do this. The issues as well as goes into this and begins to discover um, and maybe begins to discover through this uh, Jangada or Jangadero uh, story of uh, traveling from Fortaleza, which is in the northeast, uh, uh, then having to travel, as you say, on, a, on this basically raft. Um, 2,000 or so miles along the coastline, uh, navigating by the stars uh, to to be able to say, we're getting a raw deal here, or we're not being treated like the rest of the labor force in Brazil. Um, so this is, of course, in Wells' mind as well. It's interesting that it's a story that he gets from time. Yes. And, and this is perfect for Wells, who's already already in that space in terms of politics, right? Exactly. He was, you know, making his theater especially, right? Mm-hmm. Had a lot of people from the popular front in the 30s. Um, he has very progressive politics going into the 40s. Uh, and so he was very much sympathetic, you know, to what uh, the Brazilians were doing. Uh, but I think there's something else here, mm. which is that, uh, 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 that Wells really appreciates the courage of people who have very little and who lead an artisanal way of life. Mm. Um, There's something about Wells who's considered to be a modern director of sort of having a kind of nostalgia for uh, the artisanal, for a time when people created things with their hands. Uh, And that's what the Jangadeiros are. And the first scene that we show in the film, the 1993 reconstruction, is of the building of the raft, and that is in the, in the sketch. It's not a screenplay, it's a sketch for what's supposed to be in the Jangadero story, is these uh, fishermen making their jangadas, and how is a jangada made? Um, and so there's an, there's an interest in this craft, you know, this crafting of the, of the, of the vessel that's going to take them to Rio. And that, of course, pits them against the industrial fishing industry, mm. where... Uh, fishing is controlled, and the profits go to you know the people who are interested in industrializing fishing in Brazil, along with many other activities. And uh, the fishermen, the, the industrial union, is not happy at all with the Jangadeiro's trip to Rio. So Wells is clearly siding with um, the little people, right? Mm-hmm. The people who are working really hard um, and to make a living in this natural environment mm-hmm. uh, and to feed their families and um, not with um, necessarily certain kinds of industrialization. He obviously is in that place uh, in terms of his filmmaking at that very time as well. The Ambersons is a story of uh, a bit of nostalgia, but also ask this question of progress, right? Ask this question of going from a uh, you know a buggy uh, to a motor car and what a motor car will do to the community, uh, not just what it will do to uh, the world in general, but what it does to communities, what it does to towns, what it does when people can you know easily get from place to place and leave. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. Maybe that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. 
I'm not sure. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring. And I think men's minds are going to be changed in subtle ways because of automobiles. This is already the, the political and uh, emotional space, you might say, he was in, loving that uh, Booth Tarkington book and making it into the Magnificent Ambersons, and then walking into this, this story of, as you say, these, the little guy versus the industrial future. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, today, of course, later, uh, decades later, there would be questions of, you know, ecotourism in the same place, and how can we conserve the fishing activity while building up the coast, you know, to receive tourists, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because the very place where Wells filmed became a very pos- a very you know popular tourist destination. Mm. Um, and uh, I have to say, I'm happy to say because I've stayed in touch with the fishermen mm-hmm. uh, that uh, we interviewed um, that they have built a museum uh, about Shangata fishing, and there's also a cultural center where members of the community can celebrate their own musical culture and also share moments together. It's time for a break. This is Prasa Ons by Trio Gioro. In late 1941, Heriberto Martins and Grande Otello composed a samba that became not only a hit of the 1942 carnival, but the enduring hymn of Prasa Ons, or Square 11, in downtown Rio. The last carnival in Prasa Ons took place in 1942, Even before the parade, most of the square had come under the wreckers' ball to make way for the 12-lane Avenida Presidente Vargas, called a permanent scar on the face of Rio de Janeiro, and a feature of development economics. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Ears to Hear. Orson Welles in Brazil. And our guest is Catherine Benneman, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at the University of California at Irvine. In this segment, a burgeoning scholar discovers the reach and importance of Wells as a transnational filmmaker in Latin America. This film, the 1993 documentary, uh, is about the, uh, the making of It's All True and talks about the film aspects and how much of it was lost and how much was discovered in accidentally even. Uh, so there's a history of where all this uh, footage, all, these, all this film footage that was shot and, and how, it, how it was treated by RKO, RKO at the time is part of this documentary, but it's obviously a huge part of your book as well. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what drew you to, like, investigate this particular film and these, these issues uh, for, for your own work? I didn't realize that Wells had actually made a project, that he's actually directed a film in Latin America. Mm. Um, 
And I think in uh, one of the early books, uh, it was called The Focus on Orson Welles, there's mention of this episode that he uh, that, that he shot in Carnival in Brazil. Um, obviously, this project had not really been researched at the time. And then once Wells passed away in 1985, there were a number of biographies which appeared, including Barbara Leeming's biography, which in which he talks about the project. Um, but it was really reading Brazilian film history by Brazilians that I saw this was a very significant project for their sense of film history in Brazil, uh, because he had used these kinds of realist documentary methods on location. Uh, and that is something that, you know, Brazil had a film industry at the time, and it also had a newsreel service, um, shooting uh, uh, newsreels. But this was a different kind of a project altogether, uh, that they perceived kind of anticipated what would be called the Cinema Novo. And the Cinema Novo uh, was a new wave of filmmaking in Brazil, uh, also based on location, often working with non-professional actors the way Wells was working um, and that, that would be um, taking root in the 1950s. So they saw Wells really as being very avant-garde in, in anticipating this. And I thought, well, what is left of this? And I found out that Lilly Library um, owned a lot of uh, script material, also correspondence. And my intention at the time was simply to produce an exhibit on the film um, for a symposium that my alma mater, New York University, <laughs> was putting on um, on Orson Welles. Um, and it was looking at all aspects of his career, at the radio, at the theater, um, even at his, you know, his, his illustrations. He was an illustrator and also film. And so I thought, well, my part, I can contribute something and it's all true. And what happened out of that was simply it just mushroomed into this, <laughs> this dissertation Um I, I had the, the pleasure of being able to interview and conduct oral histories with, you know, the original crew for the film uh, and also many of the participants in Brazil. Um, and in Mexico, by the way, I did uh, interview some bullfighters um, who had been there during the, the filmmaking. Hmm. I think you say in, it's in one of your, uh, one of your pieces, um, it's something like uh, history from the ground up, right? It's that kind of, yes. it's that kind of work that Wells is trying to do. He's not offering the view from the top, which is the studio head's wish, right? <laughs> to, to show, to show the, the wealthy aspects, the, you know, the clean, bright and shiny world that we all purchase. And Wells is trying to show, uh, the, the world that we all live in, um, that most of us live in and have to, have yes. to deal with, uh, so the reality of his like his his politics the reality of his his ability to be immersed in a culture you know to to try to draw out and draw through through his work the culture itself it's it's impressive and it's only in work like yours that we confront it frequently or be able to be exposed to it yeah well i i you know i really think he was both really of his time right he made use of all of the te- of the technologies and strategies that were at, at his disposal, but also beyond, you know, his time in a certain way. Um, and so he opens up um, a, a second look or, you know, a sort of insight into uh, periods of, of hemispheric history. And I think he's one of the few American directors who really can be considered transnational, mm. right? Who um, is not just really American and 
and had at its hands, you know, the sort of a real a real presence in national media, but was already articulating relationships um, with other societies and other countries. And of course, he left for Europe in the late 40s, and he was able to adapt to those circumstances to produce work there. I want to just add that um, my project really benefited from and was, you know, made in tandem with this, the effort to to really bring back the film hmm. um, by preserving it at UCLA and then, of course, editing whatever was preserved into a documentary. And Richard Wilson, who was his associate producer in Brazil in the original project, um, spearheaded this uh, by taking some of the preserved footage to the Venice Film Festival in uh, 1986. And he really believed in the project and he really wanted to see it um, uh, sort of at least be brought back in some form to, you know, a late 20th century audience. Mm. And I'm happy that Bill Crone and, you know, Myron Maisel and um, uh, Jean-Luc Ormier in France, you know, really said, okay, we're, we're going to go to Brazil and we're going to produce this. And so at that point, it, it sort of dovetailed with my dissertation project. This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil, with Catherine Benamou, author of It's All True, Orson Welles' Pan-American Odyssey, about the making of Welles' film, planned as part of his efforts as a goodwill ambassador for Nelson Rockefeller's Office of Inter-American Affairs. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened, right, in terms of the film before it became the thing that you end up working on and trying to understand what it means as text, what it means as object, what it means to Brazil, what it means to hemispheric culture. Uh, what happened to the film? What happened with Wells? What was he doing that was so wrong? I know there are several, I like to call them villains. Catherine <laughs> throughout yeah. um, and I'm happy to continue to call them villains there are several villains throughout uh, and there are people that don't understand what's going on and of course Wells is is has gone off the ranch in their terms uh, and and not doing what they want and they're seeing parts of the of the film that are not explicable to them and that won't cohere into the thing that they want and uh, so on and so forth so what happens to to the film why is he not able to complete it um, what happened well, he has the support initially, and uh, but it, it's not easy to produce a 35-millimeter film on location in Brazil. Uh, things were moving slowly. He all of a sudden had the idea to make use of the studio, Sinedja Studio, to reenact uh, scenes from that he couldn't capture at the time that Carnival was happening, of how the instruments, uh, how how people use the instruments in their community, right, up in, uh, in the favelas and in the popular settlements around Rio de Janeiro. And um, so he wanted to recreate those themes with a phenomenal musician and composer, Edibelto Martins, who, had, who was already in touch with the community and um, also had a presence uh, in the casino circuit in, in Rio, uh, as did many other Latin American musicians. Uh, and he and Granja Tello, who is an Afro-Brazilian actor, uh, very popular on the radio, but also who had all, was already on the screen in certain melodramas, uh, well, actually, m- mostly co- comedies. Um, Granjotelo, uh, or Great Othello, right, 
um, met with Wells and Edivelto Martins to create uh, a kind of a screenplay uh, with Robert Meltzer, who was Wells' writer at the time, that would narrate uh, this kind of city symphony, right, if you will, um, starting up in the hills and going down to the uh, central square. And what Wells was doing, again, like the Jangadero story, is he said, you know, Vargas is going to create a modern boulevard right to the square where all these musicians come to, to jam on weekends. And he said, this is going to disrupt this culture. It's going to disrupt the communication among these communities, these peripheral communities. And so the number two samba song that year was Goodbye Prasanzi, Goodbye Square 11, where these people would meet. And um, so this set off a kind of alarm with Brazilian, the Brazilian elite. And I think the, the, the Vargas government because he did not want them taking Technicolor cameras into the hills. This mm. is not what he wanted to show the United States or anyone else in the world. Um, and But Wells was not showing the poverty in a negative light at all. He was saying, look at these people who are able to create this beautiful celebration, right, once mm-hmm. here. Uh, and so once... Rockefeller, once they caught wind, Archeo caught wind of the fact that they were pursuing something which involved a foregrounding of Afro-Brazilian culture, that set off the alarms in Archeo because we still lived in a Jim Crow society, and we still had, uh, you know, the color line on the screen. We had screen segregation. Mm -hmm. And Archeo, there are memos showing concern that this is not this is not going to be shown south of the Mason-Dixon line, literally, okay? Right. So the idea was, but they really did, as well as said, they didn't really understand Brazilian society. That is a, is a, is a country of, ra- of racial intermarriage and mixing, and it's not so clear what is black and white. And if I'm going to show Brazil as what it is, I'm going to show, you know, a multiracial Brazil. A difficult thing to do, obviously, or to, as you say, to have it even sold back in the U.S. As you, as you say, uh, still, still in the Jim Crow era. Um, and uh, I don't know anything about Vargas as uh, the dictator. Vargas at the time was he primarily um, a, a Portuguese? Uh, like, did he? Is there a, a clear distinction in his yeah. own terms of what race? That's what we would call criollo descent, right? Uh, he was mm-hmm. from the south of Brazil. Um, uh, yes, mm-hmm. and. But also, his government outlawed the religion, mm. one of the religions that Brazil, uh, Wells wanted to show in the film, because there's a connection between the religion and the samba music that's in Carnival. Mm. Mm. Gotcha. Wells wanted to show that connection. It's time for another break. This is Negado Cabelo Duro by Anjos do Inferno. When we return, Carmen Miranda and Orson Wells take center stage. <laughs> Seu cabelo é de sereia 
minha pergunta sai da gente Qual é o bem que te penteio, nega? Nega do cabeludo Qual é o Roda, o teu corpo bandoleia, teu cabelo está na moda. Qual é o que te Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil. We begin this segment with a selection from the radio episode on Brazil from Hello Americans. Welles and Carmen Miranda take us on a tour of the instruments used in samba. Catherine Benamu explains how this exemplifies transculturation. South American favorite, Carmen Miranda, no other. <laughs> Carmen. Yes? Carmen, for the, uh, for the benefit of our listeners up north who may be trying to dance to this, yeah. may I tell them to relax a little bit and just sort of bounce from the knees? Ah, please do, Orson, and tell them uh, to enjoy themselves. Yeah. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Arthur? Yes, I know. Why don't you sing just a little bit of samba What? with me? Yeah. Sure! Come on, I can't sing. No. Uh, look, look. You just come from Rio. No, no, I teach you, I teach you, I teach you, I teach you, I teach you. I teach you. Ah. No tabaleiro da baiana tem. Oh, Outra vez. Outra vez. No tabaleiro da baiana tem. 
Se eu pedir você me dá o seu coração, meu amor, de aia, me dá, me dá, me dá, me dá. E no coração da baiana tem o quê? Sedução, oi, cantarei, ilusão, oi, cantarei pra você. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot more to samba. As I've just found out, there's a lot more to samba than meets the virgin ear. There's good reason why our bands can't seem to play it right up north. Samba has its own instruments, for one thing. Now, I've got a full complement of really top samba players here at the microphone, and they're going to help us now to investigate the anatomy of samba. We're going to see, if you'll excuse me, what makes samba run. Uh, now, I'm no authority, but... Plenty of authorities are standing by. What you hear now, for instance, sounds like a drum, doesn't it? Well, it looks like a drum. Must have some special name, though, probably uh, unpronounceable. Surdu. Surdu. Yes. Well, that's not so hard, Carmen. Uh, looks African. It is. Surdu, I might explain, is a rather long, rather narrow drum that tapers down at either end. This is the first tambourine. Tambourine. Yes, correct. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, tambourine is not a uh, tambourine. As you can hear, it has no little jangling metal discs. It's square, for one thing, rather small, very crude looking. It's uh, just a rough frame with some kind of hide. Cat skin. Cat skin. <laughs> There's some skin jack stretched over one side. Yes, cat skin. The uh, player beats it with a small stick. The name of the stick doesn't matter. It's just a stick. This is the second tambourine. Ladies and gentlemen, tambourine number two. And this is important. The second plays a different rhythm from the first. I was noticing that kind of seat. Very complicated, too. It is too complicated. Well, we'll get used to it. Well, the next is the pandero. 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 Yes, yeah, something wrong, Senor Wells. Well, no, I... Pandero. I was just confused for a minute. It's all right now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this instrument, oddly enough, is exactly like our tambourine. Well, that's the way things are. Uh, yes, you're quite right. I... I ought to say that the tambourine, I mean the pandero, is played with the bare hands, one shaking it, the other beating the rhythm. Now we shall go on, yes. This is the reco-reco. Reco-reco. Yes. Why, why, why is it called the reco-reco? Well, because it's the sound it's making. Because it's the sound it makes. That's a, yeah. a very good reason. The reco-reco is a long block of hard wood with notches in it. And the sound is made by scratching another piece of wood over the notches. You want to say more about reco-reco? No. Well, that about covers it. All right. Now you hear the ganza. Ganza. 
The, the uh, Ganza is a longish metal cylinder filled with pebbles or beads or teeth or something. The gentleman here handles it with all the flair of a bartender shaking a cocktail shaker. Now, we hear the cuica. What's that, Carmen? Cuica. The cuica. Cuica. Well, this weird sound comes from a drum. However, as you notice, it isn't beaten like a drum. One end is open, and attached to the inside of the hide is a rod. When you yank it back and forth, uh, that's what you hear. There you have it. Rhythm of the sound. This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil with Catherine Benamu, author of It's All True, Orson Welles' Pan-American Odyssey, about the making of Welles' film, planned as part of his efforts as a goodwill ambassador for Nelson Rockefeller's Office of Inter-American Affairs. Well, I've been um, following probably with half an ear the whole uh, Elizabeth Warren DNA Native American ancestry thing, and it, it, it struck me as an interesting parallel to this this situation because I heard someone talk about, or, or I guess as much complain about the sort of white gaze of you know American film in particular. You know, he dances with wolves. There's a there's a white hero that that and then the Native culture re- sort of revolves around the white hero. And there's a part of this that that helps me understand the difference between a, uh, a filmmaker like Wells and, and trying to understand a culture from the inside, trying to understand what, what that culture would think or say about itself in its, vir- in its myriad ways, right? You, you can't just do yeah. one, one shot of one kind of person in a one culture and get the idea of the culture. He's trying to like track so much of it at the same time. Uh, you talk about this, I think, as transculturation, I think is a term you use. Um, yeah. And uh, so if you could talk a little bit about that, it's a big part of your, your trying to understand what Wells is doing and and how his his work is important at that point, and then as 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 the history of film f- goes forward from him, transculturation is a concept where there's mutual learning, right? There's a mutual exchange of ideas, of cultural practices, you know, sometimes of values through an encounter, right, between two cultures. And we know that, of course, the con- conquest of the Americas was not that; it was not mm-hmm, <laughs> transculturation, mm-hmm. Uh, but. Within the fine grain of that, right, there were moments of transculturation. Um, And so Wells really wanted to push that angle. He said, I'm, you know, I'm from the United States. I don't want to come in as a Yankee imperialist here. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to sort of just be a participant observer sometimes. And, And one of the most moving interviews I had, and I think which illustrates this concept, um, is was with Gerardo Cabore, who was a uh, Brazilian samba musician, who remembered taking Wells up into the hills. And he said, I taught him to use my instrument, the pandero. He wanted to learn, okay? Mm-hmm. So Wells thought, wow, if we synthesize, if we make a synthetic product out of this, right, if we have this be this mosaic in which there's these interacting parts and we create a musical... Uh, uh, tapestry, right, in Rio that shows American jazz, right, which there was a, Ray Ventura was there at the time, and he recorded him there, that shows Mexican boleros, that shows Brazilian samba music. 
will open up the possibility for transculturation because mm. the musical ear, we're hearing different kinds of music. And I think it's music has a way of being very fluid, right, mm-hmm. and being very porous and opening itself to transculturation. It's more difficult to do that through film. But he thought by having these four parts in his film that he could really, and tying them together, that, and having people immerse themselves in the worlds of these people, that maybe leaving the theater, they would have had some kind of a transcultural experience. Because he and certain, you know, interested members of his crew definitely did. They came away from this experience very different people Mm -hmm. who they were when they went there. Mm. And he never forgot, you know, he never, one one of the most, again, a a moving moment in the archives was when I opened a box uh, that he had kept until the end of his life. Um, He saved certain things for himself, you know, that, that were not at Lily. And there were these photographs of Jacare, you know, of the Tangaderos. And that told me that, you know, he, he, he was still thinking about it and he was still thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we get this film on the screen? A jangada saiu com Chico Ferribento. This is our final break, and our song is A Jangada Botoso, or The Raft Came Back by Dorvel Kaimi, which Bill Crone, one of the producers of the 1993 documentary about It's All True, tells us was a song Wells was thinking of using in his film. When we come back, Wells versus Disney. Stay with us. Chico era o boi do rancho nas festas de Natal Chico era o boi do rancho nas festas de Natal Não se ensaiava o rancho sem com Chico se contar Não se ensaiava o rancho sem com Chico se contar E agora que não tem Chico Que graça é que pode ter Se Chico foi na jangada Welcome back to Interchange for our final segment of Ears to Hear, Orson Welles in Brazil. Catherine Benamou discusses the differences between Welles and Disney's approach to being a good neighbor. And we'll close with a final bit from the Hello Americans episode on Brazil one we really need to listen closely to, as the extremist right-wing dictator-loving Jair Bolsonaro has become president-elect of Brazil. It's an important contrast, I think, as you as you talk about that, and you mentioned imperialism you know, or the imperialist idea there in terms of not... And not not transculturation, but uh, imposing culture on another's. Um, you know, is this the, is this a real easy distinction one can make between Disney's work as a good neighbor ambassador and Wells's? Yes, yes. I think Disney, on the surface, was thinking the same thing. You know, um, and these sort of anthropomorphized cartoon characters, mm-hmm. right? Um, that will learn these different parts of Latin America. 
Um, but actually, what uh, there was actually a very interesting exhibit uh, last fall of in, in Los Angeles called uh, Pacific Standard Time LALA, um, which was supposed to have a lot of Latin American and, and, and Latinx art in it, and as well as um, we had a film series at the Academy. The uh, artist, Molina, uh, the Argentine artist who gave his drawings to Disney as an inspiration, right, for the Gaucho episode um, in his film, was really offended by what Disney ended up doing with it. Mm. And if you look at his drawings, you can see a real qualitative difference, right, between these kinds of depictions of the Gaucho as an archetype and the stereotype that Disney creates out of it, mm. right? The mm-hmm. kind of laughing at someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way to, which ends up belittling them rather than showing in what Molina's view was the nobility, right, of the gaucho. Mm. So I think it's also about respect. Um, respect and, I think, more than a cursory uh, trip, you know, to meet with authorities, say, okay, what do you want me to shoot, or what should we do here? Okay, let's take a few shots here. My team will take sketches and notes. We'll take it all back to Hollywood and make it there. Well said, no, we need to make it here in, in place, in situ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we take no research back to Hollywood, it's going to be a Hollywood film. This also has to be a Brazilian film. It has to be a Mexican film. So I think that idea that the neorealists gave us in the 50s and 60s of shooting on location is really important because the transculturation begins with the people who are making the film. And then hopefully, you know, Wells was hoping it would reach the audience as well. Well, it's pretty fascinating. Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah, no, of course. It's not, it's an easy enough to, um, uh, why why we bring up Disney, and obviously it's a perfect thing because it's Disney first who who is there and does the things you expect of 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 Disney I suppose or of the US in terms of its its particular wish to to influence a a region it's it's a fascinating choice these two men right it's fascinating yeah. in itself like to imagine you couldn't imagine two different choices right yeah well at one point there was a proposal for the two of them to collaborate on something i, th- I don't know whether it's wells or disney i think what disney left me said there has there can, there can't be more than one genius in the room right? <laughs> so he recognized wells as a genius <laughs> Um, no. but Disney was really, you know, that was a different enterprise. And I think there, you know, I think animation, um, has a lot of possibilities. Uh, but we knew that animation was really going to be part, right, of that project. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back at it, uh, Disney was making a documentary, but the focus of the documentary is his team, is his crew, right? right? right. The minute they arrive in Bolivia, Chile, right, Argentina, uh, it becomes animated. And so right there, you're moving between completely different, you know, types of representation, mm-hmm. of film representation. And the minute it becomes, uh, you know, animated, then you can take certain liberties mm-hmm. in representation that you might not be able to take as easily if you're making something that's a documentary-style film. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting is that Wells did have an idea for animating parts of the jazz story, um, uh, w- with Oscar Fish- Fishinger's work, but um, that was more to illustrate the rhythm of the music and the instruments. It wasn't necessarily 
you know, to characterize jazz artists <laughs> as a group. Mm-hmm. So um, Disney did help, you know, to put Brazilian music on the map. There's a beautiful, there is a beautiful sequence, Aquarela do Brasil, right, which was a popular uh, samba at the time in Rio with, with Zé Carioca, the parrot Brazilian figure. Um, and there's also, you know, uh, he did uh, hire Carmen Miranda's sister um, to perform, right, um, with animated figures in the Bahia sequence. Um, but we still, I think, I think it's, uh, there, there are real limitations of animation uh, in terms of, uh, unless you're going to open your team, right, to people who are animators and creators from another culture, for that to become a transcultural medium. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you, you mentioned that Wells, throughout the rest of his career, uh, often referred back to this period or even tried to qu- or quoted from it in many ways. Uh, uh, obviously, he used it directly in, in some of the radio, Hello Americans, you, you point to as well. Is there a sense that, you know, this for Wells, um, that it really did uh, affect who he would become as, as a, a, a more mature filmmaker? Uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> I think he still wanted to work in um, a studio. You know, I think he still... It, it's kind of contradictory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the film influenced projects like, certainly like F for Fake, um, Chimes at Midnight, um, you know, other films that he shot on location, um, Touch of Evil, which was about right, Mm -hmm. in a way, U.S.-Mexican relations and a criticism, right, of bigotry. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was so different from what he was able to do later. Um, So I I see him taking, for example, uh, 60-millimeter cameras and and using them in his projects, you know, from the late 50s to the 70s as being in the spirit, you know, Mm -hmm. of of it's all true. in another way, I think he, it was really painful for him. It was a painful memory mm-hmm. of having put so much effort into this film and having it taken away from him that he didn't want to revisit it. Sure. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, and our show is about Orson Welles in Brazil. We're going to give Wells the last word and hear the closing of his Hello Americans radio broadcast, which aired just over 76 years ago, on November 15, 1942. They say here, here in Rio, that the samba is the soul of Brazil. This is a very popular saying, and like many popular sayings, it can be misconstrued might lead us to believe, for instance, that uh, Brazilians think seriously of nothing but dancing and singing. This isn't true, as any Brazilian will tell you. That's right, Orson. It is true. Brazil is a big country, a very big country. Indeed it is, and a wonderful one. I like it very much, and every Brazilian likes it very much. I've noticed that, Carmen. Some like the Setois of the north, some like the cattle plains of the south, some like the port cities along the coast... Some like the jungles in the interior. But all Brazilians like Brazil, as you say, Carmen, very much. There's a lot to like. There's a lot to tell. There's history and legend and romance. Most people don't care very much for statistics. 
Depends on what interests you. For instance, if you're a businessman... That's what I am, a businessman. I will tell you something about Brazil. This country is three million square miles of the biggest wealth potential on God's green earth. And I really mean green. What do you know? They grow two-thirds of the world supply of coffee here in an area one-fourth the size of Ohio. And that's only one item, coffee. Well, I guess if you're an economist, you'd be interested in all the other items, too. Right. I'm an economist. And everything considered, it seems simplest to say that Brazil could feed the world. Everything grows here. Wheat, corn, tea, rice, yes, sugar, fruits, uh, tobacco, cocoa, cattle. You could probably go on for quite a while. Oh, yes, I could. But those are only foods. Then there's cotton, rubber, hardwoods, dyes, wax. We'll have to arrange a special broadcast. Until then, let's just say that it's a very fertile country, Brazil. More than fertile. Pardon? I'm a mining engineer. I've just been through the state of Minas Gerais. That's the gold country. They've been getting gold out of there for two and a half centuries. And when they don't get gold, they get diamonds. Big ones, too. Great big ones. But I'm not so much interested in that. Or something more interesting than gold or diamonds? Not as romantic, maybe, but I'm more interested in the manganese. You need it to make steel. They've got enough here, untouched, to make new ball bearings for the entire solar system. And they've got the iron to use it on up in the valley of Rio das Velhas. Biggest iron ore deposit on Earth. Good thing to have, especially these days. Well, Brazil's got it. Fabulous country. Well, they say that God is a Brazilian. Oh, excuse me. Would you repeat that and then explain yourself? <laughs> Certainly. I'm a sociologist, and I was just quoting a Brazilian saying, God is a Brazilian. That is why he favored this country so much. Matter of fact, it's estimated that Brazil could contain 900 million people with plenty of living room and food and comfort. Well, that's half the world. Only about uh, 45 million here now. But where would all the extra ones fit? You can't send them into the jungle. No, sir, you're absolutely right. You can't send them into this jungle. There's nothing like it. I'm an explorer, been at it 40 years. Seen everything in Africa and Indian Malay, every place. And take it from me, there's nothing like the Brazilian jungle. So thick you can't get in, when you get in, you can't get out. So how can you live there? Well, people live there now. Indians. Exactly, people. The odd thing is that there is not a square mile of Brazil that can't be lived in. And this is true even though huge areas are impassable now and others are unexplored. Which means simply that Brazil today is the last great frontier. Someday, though, the jungle, like the other frontiers, will be pushed back. Do you agree, Mr. Explorer? It'll take a dang big push. It's going to happen, there's no doubt of it. That's why I'm glad we naturalists have been busy collecting specimens and making notes before it gets too late. I suppose it goes without saying that Brazil is a naturalist paradise. Charles Darwin put it this way. Brazilian scenery, he said, is nothing more or less than a view of the Arabian Nights with the advantage of reality. Oh, I'll have to remember that about the Arabian Nights. It's very accurate. You can take an hour's walk around the city of Belém, for instance, and get about 500 different kinds of butterflies. Then there are the flowers, the insects, the animals, all in unbelievable profusion. Monkeys, vampire bats, hummingbirds, jaguars, stingrays, crocodiles, giant snakes, parrots. Oh, that's what I like, the parrots. We just got married, my husband and I, I mean, and we were in Rio on our honeymoon, and there's a restaurant we went to where you sit on a terrace, and right there you can reach out and touch the jungle. And the parrots come out and look at you. My wife wants to take at least two dozen parrots back home with us. Me, I'm an architect. And I'd prefer some of the Baroque colonial buildings I've seen. You don't find a better example of that sort of thing in Minas or Bahia. That's quite a problem, moving large buildings from one country to another. I think it's been done, though. 
castles or something like that and crates. Oh, he's just joking, but I'm serious about the parrots. Maybe there won't be any more when there's no jungle. Say, you ought to see that jungle. I'm going to. Uh, too bad it's going to be done away with. I'll have to chart it first. Most of it's never been seen. That's going to take some little while. It will be done. Uh, what's going to happen to you gun and camera boys when there's nothing left to explore? And without a good jungle in the world, what are the adventure story writers going to do? We'll pass over that question for the moment. Your credentials, please. I'm a writer. Came down here to Rio to do a family novel about my hometown, Elko, Nevada. Distance lends perspective. What I like here are the air-conditioned skyscrapers. Well, There's certainly nothing new to you. Contrast. That's new. You go up to the top floor of one of these slick buildings and look out towards the hills and see real jungle. Dances and music right from Africa. Skyscrapers and jungle. I like that. And I like the idea of a drop of blood here in Rio. What about a drop of blood? Well, first there are the Portuguese. Spanish, Arabic, Nordic, Greek, Moorish. Portugal's the melting pot of Europe. All right. The Portuguese come to Brazil. And then others come from Europe and Africa and North America... So that today, a drop of real Brazilian blood is an honest-to-goodness drop of all mankind's blood. And it occurs to me that since men in the world have to live with one another and get along somehow, they might learn a great deal about tolerance and quiet decency from the Brazilians who have the blood of all men. Maurino, Dada e Zeca, oh, Embarcaram de manhã Era quarta-feira santa that's our show. This is Milagre, or Miracle, by Nana Kaimi. Thanks to Catherine Benamou for giving us a glimpse into Orson Welles as he mixed it up in Brazil and tried to put the truth about Brazil's people and culture on the screen and prove himself a truly good neighbor. Benamou's definitive work is It's All True, Orson Welles' Pan-American Odyssey, published by the University of California Press. Next up on Interchange, we move from the first of Welles' projects he was forced to abandon to perhaps the last. Jonathan Rosenbaum joins us to talk about The Other Side of the Wind. It's been in the works for over 40 years, stars John Huston and Oya Kodar, and has just been released on Netflix. So you can certainly do your own prep work for the next Interchange. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Maurinho, Dada e